On episode 227, I'm interviewing Brian Leach, Director of Design Solutions at Nielsen. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. Hi, I'm Jamin Brazil, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Bryant Leach, Director of Design Solutions at Nielsen. Nielsen is an American information, data, and measurement company that operates in over 100 countries and employs approximately 44,000 employees. Prior to joining Nielsen, Bryant has worked as both a client-side researcher and agency researcher. He has also been a ski instructor. Bryant, thanks very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks a lot, Jamin. Appreciate being here. Let's start out with a conversation about your parents. What did they do and how has that informed your career? Yeah, so um, actually both my, you know, my dad, my grandfather, and even my great-grandfather were actually all entrepreneurs. So I've always kind of grown up thinking that that was the route I'd kind of go down was some kind of business that I would be starting. But, you know, I think one of the really great things was that my parents were really open to allowing me to explore whatever whatever kind of avenues I was really interested in and kind of look into whatever I found to be interesting throughout my career and through my studies. I did my undergrad in psychology and from there I kind of got out of the into the job market and had no idea really what I was going to do. And as you mentioned, I kind of had a love for the mountains. So I headed up to the mountains in Colorado and was lucky enough to connect with some people that, you know, I went to a job fair and they were, they had a card in front of them and said market research. And I had no idea what that was. So I started talking with them a little bit and it sounded like a perfect opportunity to blend a lot of my love for sort of the mountains and for data and some of the things I learned in my psychology undergrad. And from there, I, I basically kind of fell into the career a little bit and was kind of starting out. I was able to actually do some in-market research. It was on the client side, but it was kind of skiing around the mountain and uh, asking people questions similar to what a CLT does. And from there, I kind of just found that I had a real passion for research and I ended up going from there and pursuing a, a master's degree after that. It harkens back to my very early days in market research when I was doing a lot more uh, in-person interviewing. Mm -hmm. Did you find it in useful having the, obviously skiing is a passion of yours in a way that you actually made uh, some money, at least beer money. Did you, exactly. Were you able to successfully apply sort of that intuition into the research, creating a little more value on the back end of the application of that data? Yeah, it was mostly for beer money. I will say that. Um, but, you know, I think at that point in my early days, I was pretty lucky because I got a little bit more exposure to the management side of things. So I had about 20 employees at the ski resort. They were actually all going out and, and doing these in-person interviews. So while, you know, a lot of my friends were, you know, out teaching skiing or things like that, that weren't as applicable to the, I would say, in quotations, the real world, you know, I was able to sort of parlay some of that into real world experience and kind of talk to that. So once I actually moved on from this sort of being in a mountain environment and actually being in more of a corporate environment, I still had a lot of those transferable skills, which I'm really appreciative for now 
in that then when I trans transitioned into a large company, I still had some things on my resume that I could still use. So I think it was kind of a perfect combination for me out of college for a few years. And you were part of Affectiva, is that correct? During the, uh, and then that was ultimately sold to Nielsen? Yeah, Affinova, yeah. So they- Affinova, um, sorry about yeah, that. No, no, no problem. So they, they were kind of a smaller startup, about 200 people that I, I started with after I had completed my master's. And yeah, they were about quite small, but very kind of nimble in startup, not in the real, real beginning phases of a startup, but actually had some processes around things. But it was a really cool way to sort of enter the market with something that was growing at 20 or 30% a year and really had a lot of buzz going around that, that company. Yeah, that was a very successful outcome for uh, the entire organization. And I think for Nielsen, probably one of the more important acquisitions given its centricity to product development and sort of overall workflows and, and, create, and ingestion of insights into those. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a, I think it was really a one plus one equals three sort of situation for the, both the companies. What is one of the biggest challenges that you've overcome either personally or professionally? So about a year into my role with Affinova, I was actually asked to go work in the UK. So from my start with Affinova, I actually uh, ended up moving there and it was supposed to be a one-year assignment. I ended up loving it. So I ended up staying there for four years. But one of the biggest challenges I found was actually working with clients of different cultures on a daily basis. So growing up in the States, I think we tend to be quite isolated and really just work with people that are, have a sort of a similar background to us and a similar working style. But, you know, learning how to work with people from, you know, a project with people from France or Spain or Germany, all are going to have very different working styles, different things, different expectations that they're going to have for each one of those. Uh, and I found that to be a really big challenge to begin with. You know, I was able to overcome it, I think, uh, after, you know, I would say a couple of years it almost took to really get to be proficient at knowing what those different cultures expected, but that was a pretty big challenge for me. So how, how did you overcome it? Was it just like a block and tackling or did you read Bow, Kiss, Shake Hands? I forget the name of that book. <laughs> well, I remember the first, um, the first delivery I ever had was to a Spanish client. Um, and, you know, I don't think we ever realize how much acronyms and metaphors and things like that we talk about in, the ways we talk in the States. But, you know, I went in there and I said, well, let me tell you, I'm going to quarterback this one for you. And then I w went, wait a second. None of you understood what I just said there. And they go, no, but we just thought it was funny and we we're cracking up on the other side of the line. So, you know, I think there's some things you sort of learn <laughs> trial and error a little bit sometimes. And I think there are also some, I had some really good mentors and people that were just, that helped me understand how to communicate effectively, how to, you know, slow down my speech, how to make sure that the clients were really understanding what I was saying and that at different levels, you have to be able to communicate in different ways. Yeah, I, my experience has been very humbling. I, I, you know, growing up in America, of course, America is in the middle of the map, right? So the whole world has to pay attention to us, I guess. And as I was fortunate enough to grow up in a global, in a global context, you know, just the, it, I mean, it's way more than small little things. It's 
it gets down to big things, down to what words we use and the frameworks of situations. As you said, the metaphors on how we connect different points to people is actually really important mm -hmm. in order to <laughs> register on a global basis. But probably for me, one of the more difficult challenges was understanding when someone understood something and when they didn't and thinking about the difference between like the Indian culture versus the Dutch culture, right? right. Where you've got like somebody that's brutal to the point and then somebody else who is maybe a little bit more uh, just trying to make me feel good. Absolutely. Yeah, I found the, uh, the, the worst thing to ever hear from a British person is everything is fine. Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's literally on fire right now. Right. Everything is on fire if it is fine right now. So, you know, I think there's a lot of those things that you just don't know until you learn it, right? Uh, until you learn that that style. But I think I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. I mean, I think if you learn how these different cultures interact and, and how they communicate, it's it's vitally important to our, our world today and how that works. Yeah, it's all about setting that context. So tell me about a research project that you're most proud of. So I had a boss actually, just to preface this, that said, you know, it, before one of our projects kicked off, said that, you know, this project is going to be hard, but the hard ones are the ones that you learn the most from, which I think is like, I've really taken to heart. And because I had a project not long after that that came up that essentially not only took over my life, but it took over probably our entire office's life in the UK for about three months. This was one of those ones where our sales salesperson went out, sold the project to the client and immediately left the company after that. So there were basically no expectations set. And the client was one of the most demanding clients you can ever get on. Everything from the sample composition needing to be down to the single person in a specific region needing this specific criteria to really having to have uh, having spies on the ground to make sure that the, the work was being done. So there were a multitude of different issues we were dealing with on a daily basis with this client. But I think it was really interesting because it really taught me a lot about sort of product management, solution-driven solution management, and being able to understand the intricacies of the product that I'm actually talking about. Um, I think it taught me more than any other project about having to know the very, very minute details of everything that I'm doing. So I think while it may have been a very huge challenge, you know, nights up until 2 a.m. trying to figure stuff out before delivery of this project, it was one of the more rewarding projects to be sort of done with after we're finalized. If you had to narrow it down, was there one specific thing that stood out that you learned a lot that you're grateful for? Like, was it technology expertise? Was it methodological? Was it interpersonal? If you were to try to hone it in on some of the, I know broad speaking is everything got better, but mm -hmm. where would you say the, the big win was? I think for me in that situation, it was probably just being able to really know the solution inside and out that we sell. So what I do now is a lot of specialty work, specifically on design research. With Design research isn't a huge piece of the market research industry overall. And it really allowed me to really become an absolute expert on every piece of, of the process within design that, you know, maybe I wasn't, didn't know exactly where every number in a report came from. But I think after, you know, thousands of man hours being put into this one project and really having to dissect our product to the nth degree, uh, that's where that sort of mastery of the product came from, too. Isn't it interesting how, with along with that mastery comes 
you know, such a heightened sense of confidence that you can walk into any situation because you're fully armed to deal with quite literally any situation or question that's thrown at you. The other thing I think is a big win on having a, a level of mastery, and I love that word, is the other side of it, the confidence that the customer has when they're interacting with you uh, is just different than if you only knew 90%, you know, the high level features or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, you can only get that through going through the trenches, unfortunately, sometimes with these solutions, you know, especially with Nielsen, you know, we have so many solutions. So um, we sell a lot of different things to a lot of different clients and are very almost specialized in specific areas that we work in. So yeah, to have that mastery of that product and that area, I think is, is really important and really brings something else to the table. Being able to say, you know, I've done you know, 100, 200, 300 of these types of projects and or design projects for our clients really just adds another layer of confidence in how they're going forward with something. Do me a favor and unpack um, exactly what you mean by design research. The best example I give is just, you know, if you're trying to come out with a new package for the, the normally what we're doing is a lot of CPG work. So we're doing, you know, things that come out in the grocery store, we're kind of looking at trying to figure out what is the best package that they might come out with. Specifically, I, I work on a solution that you we're trying to figure out a good broad exploration of different designs that they might be, be looking at and narrow down those designs to maybe one or two that might be the best for them to move forward with for further refinement to launch. So that tends to be the bread and butter of what we do. We work with many different categories as well. It's not just that. We do a lot with retailers. We're doing a lot with different in-store, like quick, quick service restaurants, as well as also doing a lot of things with like alcohol brands as well. So all the designs that you might see coming out for those, a lot of those will be tested with Nielsen. One of my very first projects with, was with McDonald's, and this goes back into the mid-90s, we actually built a pseudo storefront where, or excuse me, a counter with the background, you know, the ordering uh, menu, whatever that hung behind people. And, um, you know, we, design was a key element of obviously of uh, what people, how much money people wound up spending in that, in that context. And it's a really important part of research. I do think that there is a gap in terms of, modern, you know, more recently started companies and understanding how research can inform decisions. I mean, companies at scale like a McDonald's or, you know, any real large QSR CPG firms, of course, they have it, they have the research stages dialed in or the way that research plugs into the life cycle of the project dialed in. But I think a lot of that, a lot of companies that are in the last three years, five years, they don't have that layer of sophistication a lot of times they're just making you know either a b choices because something's trending different or you know performing better and they don't understand the why um or they're operating on gut have you seen across your customer base a any sort of steady state increase among newer companies entering into research or employing research i think that's the buzzword right now right is it you know i think a lot of what we're seeing is that more and more people are, are moving away from, they're doing research that's more informative rather than scientific, I would almost say, right? And so for example, you know, our, our solution was kind of developed originally to explore a large number of designs, but 
in reality, what's happening a lot of times is, you know, maybe they'll have three or four designs that they're looking to go with and they just use our product as that sort of end state and that, you know, whatever comes out of it, they, that's what they launch. Um, and I think this sort of need for quicker, faster, you know, give me an answer and let's let's move forward with this um, and let's get it get it in market to consumers tends to be the trend now. And I think there's a lot of competitors out there, you know, that are going towards that quicker and faster. I, I don't think I've seen anything <laughs> launched recently uh, or any company launched recently that's going for that, you know, huge $100,000, research project anymore. Everything is quicker, faster technology-based stuff from every company that I've seen launch recently. So, yeah, I think that's just the reality. And right now, that just seems to be like we need to figure out ways to meet that need of our of our consumers, which is our client, right? If you kind of just unpacking this point, because I think this is so important, certainly relevant for our audience. If you think about like research, Nielsen's really interesting, right? Because you guys sit on this big base of syndicated perspective on, you know, longitudinal. There's not another single point of truth that's referenced more often than, than Nielsen as it relates with product performance. When you're thinking about like the growth area, is that where the investment is happening? Is it is the customer, the user of this data, are they the inside of market research or are they sitting outside of the market traditional market research role? In other words, is it a you know person in charge of product or a user experience or a UI person? So one piece is that I don't really touch too much of like sort of the, we call it RMS data or the, you know, the client data that you'd get from like the scanner data. I don't touch too much of that piece of the business. I think it's vitally, it's great resource for us to have in the innovation space, which is where we work in, but it's not as much where I fall, but it's obviously an amazing resource to have when we're like working through a project and trying to figure out, you know, where's this client coming from? Why, why are they needing this new research, this new design? Um, and to be able to add that context into things to say, you know, we know you've been shrinking at 5% a year and, and we can look in and see some of the trends across the market that might be impacting those sales figures and who's coming into the market recently. And so being able to look at a lot of those things, I think it really helps us. And yeah, I think, but I, specifically on a day-to-day basis, I'm not working as much with that, that sort of data field. Because as you know, as you mentioned, Nielsen is the, a very big buzzword, but we all kind of fit within a little bit of uh, buckets here. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. So looking forward, how will the market research space be different in the next five years? I think that's a really good question. And it's actually something that I'm working on as well, because, you know, I have a foot in two different worlds. One of the worlds is, is trying to do a bit of a sales execution role for design solution. Um, the other one is actually doing a product role, so developing our next generation of products. And I think a lot of what we're seeing, as I mentioned, is there's more automation. But what I'd like to see more and more of is automation with a purpose. So I think there's a lot of companies out there that are automating solutions that allow our clients to put in, say, a design or a concept or whatever it may be and quickly get an answer back. Now, I think if you peel back some of the layers of what they have, 
There's not a lot of content behind a lot of what they're posing, but it's quick, it's fast, it's dirty, and it allows that client to get an answer, which is better than not having an answer and just guessing. But I think what we're trying to do is blend the ability to do some kind of automation, but I say automation with a purpose, something that gives them that answer quickly that works for our clients and what our clients are asking for, but not at a pace that is really undermining the integrity of the research. And I think one of the big things for Nielsen is we really don't want to launch anything that there's not any integrity or any backbone to. Whereas I think there's a lot of solutions that I see out there today. There seems to be one every few months that comes out that really just doesn't seem to have much of a backbone to it. So thinking about, it isn't just about speed, right? We've, we've been talking a lot in this industry for the last two years as research automation is trending. In fact, I'll be in Cincinnati on April 10th and 11th at the MRMW located, I believe it's on the premises of Procter & Gamble. But anyway, so you know th- that particular event, the theme is research automation. And we've been hearing about that at nauseum to your point. So, it, and it's all predicated on the three-legged school, stool, speed, cost, quality. It used to be pick two, now it's, you know, you get all three. I think your, your point is literally the most important point that a practitioner in research needs to consider when they're thinking about tools. And that is there needs to be a why, you know, in terms of it isn't just about delivering against those, that rubric of three things. There needs to be a core element of that that deliver that automation that delivers a better, whether it's just life experience, you know, or research insight so that it informs your work on a go forward basis. And, and I'll, to your point, I think we're not talking enough about what that why is in the tools that are entering the marketplace, certainly, and even ones that have been established. Uh, it seems like we continue to get relegated towards those that three-legged stool conversation. Yeah, and I, I think to your point, the balance there too is you know re, you know we all know that research budgets in a lot of companies are being cut, especially in the CPG world. But they're not just being cut from you have to spend half as much. They're also being cut from people's people at that specific company, right? So I think the difficulty is, is, you know, these quick and dirty solutions, a lot of times rely up to you to make the analysis. And there is no one else on the back end that's going to do any work to be able to succinctly put these, you know, these five different data points together to give you a decision there. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's fine if you have a really experienced researcher, but that's not always the case these days. So I think it can really lead us down astray if you're using a lot of these solutions, if there's no one to sort of help guide that discussion or be the expert in the room on that discussion. So how does that fit then? Like, and I take your point, that's su- that's super important. And there's not a lot of, it's almost like full stack developers, right? People that are capable of doing both the execution and then also the business insight context, you know, fitting the answers into what the business should do. Mm-hmm. Um, are you thinking there might be opportunities for augmented services, kind of like a your FTE <laughs> for hire for a week? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, the way we're sort of approaching it is we are absolutely trying to use more automation in our system. We have a platform called Studio that has actually a bit of a relic from our Afinova company. That was one of the big reasons why Nielsen acquired us that allows you to, you know, do things like uploading a concept to it or upload a design or, or upload different things that allows you to house those, those types of things, keep things organized. 
um, and also get your results on that instead of, you know, drowning on, in PowerPoint decks. So I think there, you know, what we're trying to do is, is a level of automation, but not to the level of some of our other competitors that are full automation where there is almost zero touch point with a person on the other end. And it's really just you sort of almost doing, you know, your own survey monkey. It's just, it's got a nice sort of package around it or a nice little ribbon around it as a deal. But, you know, it's cheap, it's fast, it's quick for them. And I think there's maybe some places where that can be used, but I think it might be overused at the same time these days. So when you pull back in in the context of today, what's the biggest issue that's facing market researchers like yourself? Um, I mean, the thing I, I struggle with and the thing I'm always trying to think about is, is what is the next big thing? You know, my role is pretty product oriented, so I'm trying to think ahead a lot. And to your point, there's a lot to do with automation, but there could also be some other white spaces and areas that could be very interesting to keep moving forward with in those next five years. I think in terms of the the biggest challenges is really where, how far we want to push that automation down the road and where that balancing act needs to be. You know, the Qualtrics acquisition was really interesting from a valuation perspective, right? And of course, Nielsen being a publicly traded company probably cares a lot about, certainly the shareholders do, about how do we sort of start replicating that framework is... You know, do you think software just continues to, we just move more and more in that space to we're much more of a research or a insights empowerment industry as opposed to the sage on the hill keeper of knowledge? Yeah, I think there's going to be more and more of a push for that, right? You know, even our new CEO is a ex-Watson IBMer. So, I mean, even from that perspective, you can see how much the company and the shareholders within Nielsen are valuing you know, that sort of experience and and in that and that sort of background, right, is that sort of ability to know what how software and insights meld each other together and how we can sort of be the leader in that space. You guys are sitting in such a unique spot, right? I mean, you're so far ahead from I mean, a six billion dollar business is massive <laughs> right? In, in, at, at any level. But um, you know, in market research, when you represent nearly 10% of the, of the TAM, I mean, that's a, that's our, the market share. That's a, that's a really noticeable uh, position. And so, you know, what you guys care about is probably <laughs> certainly germane for everybody else. Do you think in the context of growth, you guys are going to look at M&A as a strategy for your, for your go forward? You know, I'm not as privy to under, to know where where we're at with that sort of thing with the M&A. As you can imagine, yes, considering we do have that level, uh, at my level, we don't really know so much about where we're at with that. But I think there's also the ability for us to internally be able to offer succinctness, even within the solutions within our wheelhouse, that give us some strategic advantage as well. There's a lot of different pieces to our business that all can kind of play well together and be able to work well together to sort of deliver better outcomes to our clients. So, you know, I think that's a lot of what we're working on too, is is, is there different pieces we can put together here to help out the business as well. So the pieces, I guess really the heart of my question is that the pieces, are they, that you're, are, they, are you guys building them out or do you see partnerships as part of the thesis? Uh, both, I think. Um, okay. I think right now, you know, I... <laughs> 
being the sort of product person, I'm look, I always am looking for anything we can do. And I think it's really just trying to meet those client needs and offer something else that our clients don't have right now or can't do right now. Uh, so that's what I'm really looking at is how do we kind of figure out some strategic partnerships or areas that we can use our tools we already have and d- develop them in different ways that can that can work together. Got it. Um, the best. What are the three characteristics of an all-star employee? That's a good question. I would say sort of trust, flexibility, and a, like like a, te- a good team attitude, I would say. I, I saw something like recently that said like, you know, all you need is sort of one, one bad egg and in that team, and that team can decrease your productivity by 25%. That entire team, just by having that one person that sort of either isn't pulling their weight or, you know, it doesn't really have a good team attitude, I think is to me, the most important thing. I don't think they need to be always the most brilliant employee. In in actuality, when I've had, you know, kids from some of the smartest schools in the country, but maybe weren't team players for the rest of the team, that actually brought the entire team down in general. So what I'm looking for is, you know, really team attitude, trust and flexibility in their ability to be up for anything, really be positive, work well together with others. And to really just drive through a positive attitude for the entire team and pick each other up. So that's what I'm always looking for in in potential team members to join Nielsen and our design team in particular. I like the bad egg example specifically because my wife and I have three chickens. <laughs> we This weekend we were doing some cleaning of the coop and I found an egg that turned out to be a bad egg and it was catastrophic. It's a visceral connection for me, especially in that way. My framework is very similar and that is I don't care how good of a performer somebody is, like technically competent or sales, you know, beating quotas or whatever, if they're not benefiting the overall organization and if they, certainly if they're in a negative framework, then there's some tough conversations that are going to happen and you need to have those conversations really quick because bad fits will wreck you from an overall company perspective. Yep, I agree. That's that's kind of always been my motto. And I, I think I'd rather continually chug along and continually improve as a team slightly than try to make this huge jump with someone who might be a big risk to the team and the morale within the team. And that's a huge thing I protect is really that morale within the team and making sure that that's strong and that there's, um, and people want to come to work every day. You know, we're, we're not curing cancer. You know, my boss told me we're not curing cancer. We're not, you know, here designing the next rocket that's going to go to the moon, you know, right. But we're, but you know what, I want people that come in and are happy to come in and are happy to work every day and have a good attitude towards everybody else and, and like working together. And I think to be honest, those have always been the teams that far exceed expectations. You know, a lot of people forget about the intentionality that goes into a positive culture. Like you quite literally need to turn on the smile and because you set that overall tone. And and one of the things I've noticed about up and coming leaders is that's one of the big lessons that they learn is they think, oh, Jamin's just always naturally happy. But the reality is, you know, you just kind of, it doesn't matter. You have to set that framework for your entire team and entire organization in order to be able to infect them with that cultural norm. Again, it just kind of gets down to the intentionality of driving that sort of culture. And then if you do a good job of it, the other, you know, the flip side of it is the rewards are you, you it kind of self-enforces. So when, you know, I ha- might be a little bit frustrated with things or maybe a lot frustrated with things, I can, I know that I'm going to have a laugh or whatever with the other person or people. So yeah, that's, that's a great point. 
Yeah, well, if I woke up with fresh eggs every morning, I think I'd be pretty happy too. Come on. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, what you brought it up already. What is your personal motto? So I would say my personal motto is, you know, keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm very much uh, in the camp that if someone doesn't understand something, you can you can explain away however much you want. But if you're not keeping it pretty digestible for people and making research something that they can understand, understand the insights and, and quickly action those and explain those to their boss or whoever else, internal stakeholders and confidently and feel and feel good about that, then you, you've lost, right? So to me, it's really keeping that simplicity down and, and making sure that if you got 20 points, we got to narrow those down to five um, that are really the most key core important points that we want them to take away. I think that life today is just so busy that we really need to keep things uh, simple for our clients and, you know, really drive down to those areas that we really need to make an impact for them. Oh, that's great. What a joy this conversation has been. So my guest today has been Bryant Leach, Director of Design Solutions at Nielsen. Thank you, Bryant, so much for joining me today on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. And everybody else, I appreciate your time and attention. I know that I personally enjoy these conversations. If you find value in them, will you please do me a favor, screenshot the episode, share it on LinkedIn, share it on Twitter. And as always, your feedback is fantastic. You know, your ratings on Apple iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into this podcast, help other people like yourself be able to find it. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com.